0: Karjagail, this is episode 36 of the Rebel Matters podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Anla O'Carolan, and on this week's episode, I sat down with Alex Hummets from the Connolly Youth Movement. The Connolly Youth Movement have taken over a vacant property in Cork City and have set up a squat there that they've renamed Connolly Barracks, and I went down to the Liberated Building to speak with Alex and find out a little bit more about what the squat was about. It's quite a long episode so I'll keep the introductions nice and short today but there's a couple of things that I want to let you know about first and foremost before we get stuck into it. Firstly we have properly launched the GoFundMe campaign for the volunteer gym that we want to open up in the West Bank this year. The overall financial goal of the project is to raise 30,000 euros so that we can go over and Install a gym in the Eda Refugee Camp to help the people there have a little bit a better quality of life and to help them combat some of the main health issues that they're suffering with over there because of the ongoing Israeli occupation and the oppression that they get from the Israeli army coming in to the camp at will and trying to make life as difficult as possible for people in the Eda Refugee Camp. And as you know, if you've been listening to the podcast previously, and I was over in the West Bank twice last year. You can find out a little bit more about the project and how you can contribute to it by going to gofundme.com forward slash West Bank Gym. Or if you just put in West Bank Gym into the GoFundMe search bar, you'll find it. You'll see a little video of me explaining a bit more about the project and the idea behind it and a bit more detail on the overall plan of the project. So we launched that properly this week so if you want to get behind that it's, it's a very very worthwhile project and we would really appreciate any help that we can get in terms of the fundraising and also promoting the project in general so that we can actually make it happen. Next up I just want to send a big thank you to everyone who's been supporting the podcast over the last number of weeks and months. This is the 30th sixth episode and it's also the ninth episode in a row where we've released an episode every Friday for the night for the last nine weeks and I want to keep that going. So thanks a million to everyone who's been sending messages, sharing the podcast on social media and giving me bits of feedback after listening to the show. It's been really useful and a nice motivator for me to keep going and keep on getting the shows out on Friday morning. So got million I give a card to Gail If you want to become an uber fan of the Rebel Matters podcast then you can go and find us on the Patreon website. If you just put in Rebel Matters podcast to the Patreon search bar you will find us and there you will have the option to become a patron of the podcast and what that means is that you can sign up to sort of a little monthly subscription to the podcast to help cover the cost of the production and the travel and everything else that goes into producing the Rebel Matters podcast on a week to week basis. You can kind of look at it as a form of digital busking in the same way that you would fire a couple of quid into a busker on the main street of whatever city that you're living in if they were doing a good job at providing entertainment for the people passing by. Of course, if you don't want to do that, then that's okay. The podcast is still for free and widely available on just about every podcast platform that's out there so you can give us a little review and a rating and share the podcast around with your mates if that's a way that you would like to support the podcast as well I would be very much grateful for that. Anyway let's get stuck into this episode with Alex. It is quite a long conversation we covered a lot of ground but I think it is a very worthwhile conversation and I think you guys are going to enjoy it so Buen salt san le Alex Hamats <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about how the Conley Barracks came about? Yeah no problem um, so
1: as you look around you might observe that we have no electricity uh, in the building so you might also observe that it's a very old building so if you look at some of the architecture and kind of the ceilings and stuff and even the high nature of the ceilings you can observe that it's a kind of old style 18th century kind of building and you'll see that in the corridor as well. Now why that's relevant is because the district we live in is this street. So starting maybe five doors down and ending another three houses up used to be where kind of wealthy people lived in the 19th century. And then in the early 20th century, it became uh, tenement blocks. And I suppose it's ironic because they're all student accommodation now. Um, Kind of once more, they're tenement buildings, if you will. And, How Connolly Barracks came about is, I suppose, it's connected to that. Uh, It's connected to the housing crisis first and foremost, um, and connected to another action. So, are you familiar with Apollo House that occurred about two years ago, three years ago now? So, when we saw Apollo House break break out, was the only way to describe it. When we saw Apollo House break out in Dublin, and we saw the occupation, we felt quite inspired uh, by that in Cork. And a number of meetings began to take place to organize our own occupation and our own Apollo House in Cork. This included loads of different activists from every single background you can think of. There's about 30, 40 people to a room. And we began kind of scheming is the word. What building would we take? Where would we go? What would we do? What would be the point of it? And about two weeks into January, I think, Apollo House, their outreach team, actually contacted us and said, kind of put that on the shelf for the time being, because we've accepted the junction of the court and we're going to move people out and close the project.
0: That Was that January last year?
1: That was January last year, yeah. Yeah,
0: 2018.
1: Yeah. Um, So that was kind of the end of, say, any project in Cork. But the idea of squatting and occupying something clearly stuck in our minds, (laughs) as we can see. And we decided to roll with it anyway. So we started looking at buildings around Cork city centre that had clear signs of dereliction or idleness and this was one of the buildings that kind of was immediately flagged down. Now there's a huge gap between 2017 January and June 2017 when we actually changed the locks of the building. So Apollo House was I would say ground zero in terms of inspiration but we kind of took it up a notch and educated ourselves on certain aspects of private property, and more importantly, squatting in adverse possession, and flagged down this building, as well as a few other buildings, but this building in particular, as a potential place to occupy.
0: How did you take over the building?
1: Um, I can't really comment as to how the building was taken over in the first place, um, but it does involve... Um, I suppose grey areas which as I said I
0: can't comment on. Yeah, good. good. So then it was is a Connolly Youth Movement took over the building? Is it is it as a group or how how, like It was
1: always a Connolly Youth Movement project, yeah. yeah. We were kind of pushing the we were pushing the initial kind of housing thing and then given that it was it dissipated, we decided we'd do something ourselves.
0: And this kind of came out of it, yeah. And through your research, all the research you guys were doing before you just took over the building about private property and stuff, like what were the main things that came out of that? Um,
1: so squatting is called adverse possession under our Irish private property law. And it's quite fascinating because adverse possession isn't established for uh, young communists trying to take over buildings. It's established for farmers taking land off each other. And the case law around it is very weak, and it's very underdeveloped. And in the most recent edition of Irish private property law, if you go to the library and pick up a copy in the references section, the closing sentence on the last chapter on adverse possession will say, to date, Marxist activists have not yet used adverse possession as a means of protest. So it's quite curious that the author of the Irish private property law book even sees the potential for political activists to make use of the kind of flexible adverse possession laws, because... That's what that's why we're still here because they are quite flexible in Ireland, and there's been no kind of act of the that has closed the loophole effectively. And so, how long have you been here now? March makes the nineteenth month. And has anybody tried to reclaim the building? Yes. So on the first, so we formally moved in here in the year of two thousand and seventeen, August. So August, September, and then in late October, we had the alleged owner show up. And we had one of our members sleeping up top stairs, and the alleged owner did the front door in. And he had some lackey with him, I don't know who it was. And they informed us that we were to leave, uh, that the whole show was over, and that we were trespassers. Um, I got a phone call from my comrade, who was formerly asleep, I suppose, and I kind of rushed back from town. And one of the first things I did was I closed the door on the landlord, in Iran, uh, his accomplice, because essentially the way it works is that if we're inside and they're outside, it's a physical kind of question. They can't establish possession over their building if they're outside the building. So the first thing we did was just close the door. And then we started rallying up uh, friends, essentially, as well as Connelly Movement members. About 40 minutes passed and... Two detectives showed up. Um, I don't know why they were detectives, but they said that nobody else at the Bridewell was available, so they sent them. Okay. And the interaction was interesting because they didn't know really what was going on for quite some time until they copped on that this wasn't just any other kind of dispute, it was a squat. Um, It took about three and a half hours for them to establish that because. We were also not very forthcoming, Um, and there was also a lot of people outside, so they weren't really too interested. And I think the most important thing, though, here is in terms of how the guards dealt with it, and I'll come back to it later, I suppose, is who was the person who was alleging to own this building, and was he an important person, and as it turns out, he wasn't important enough for the guards. Now, the reason that's relevant is because we had two further occupations last summer, and they were owned by AIB Bank. And we met the emergency response unit, the special branch, criminal detectives, a paddy wagon and two regular guards. So who owns the building is also quite important, derelict or not.
0: Where were the other two squads?
1: They were opposite St. Finbar's Cathedral and to this day all
0: those buildings are still empty. So we're sitting in so like, the kitchen living room at the minute. It seems like the place is fairly well organised. Have you been organising yourselves in a certain way since taking possession of this house? We organize,
1: according to the principles of democratic centralism, Um, the ideas Lenin laid down, essentially, when he argued in 1903, as far back as then, as to how a party should be properly organized to maintain a cohesion of direction and discipline. And what that means, essentially, in practice, is that we sit around and make all major decisions in the House together, uh, that... We have the opportunity to dissent or air our criticisms but that decisions when they're made are binding ultimately at the end of the day and all housemates for example are bound to carry them out and the branch is organized in the exact same way as is the movement nationally so we are organized differently to other squats, and i think that's that's one of the things we took very seriously and very importantly when we were approaching the question of occupying a building because for example
0: when I say the word squat, what comes to your mind? Say, I think traditionally squat would be, say, just a house that's been broken into and people are just living there. Yeah, yeah,
1: that's the thing. And I think that's what most people think as well. Um, and then in Dublin, for example, the squatting scene is quite different as well. It's not, very, it's not about sending a political message. It is about breaking into a building and living in it or even having like a house for sessions or whatever else or a house where you can do whatever you want. And we decided that that approach wasn't really appropriate for communists and it wasn't really appropriate when we're talking about a socialist revolution. But then we'd go and kind of trash a house and occupy it and stuff and live here like animals. We decided to take it a different direction and figured that, and it's part of the name as well, you know, it's called Connolly Barracks to give the connotation that there's a degree of organization, direction, and a degree of kind
0: of sense to the building as well. When I when I look around here and I see like the rules on the wall and the posters and stuff like that and the pictures of all the revolutionaries and what kind of reminds me of the type of squat that they would have in the Basque country where they would occupy a former government building maybe or a derelict house and organize classes and um, places a place kind of education. Is there anything you got there going on in here? Um,
1: never been to the Basque country, but now that you've mentioned it, it's a must. Um, We would have our branch meetings here, and when it gets lighter, so because it's been getting dark at like 5, 6pm, it's been impossible to kind of gather 20 people in the room and actually do something. But maybe once May hits, once June hits, we'll probably relocate a lot of our uh, branch activities to the house again, like we did last year. So we did all kind of our banner making, our education workshops, um, our socials all in the house, and there was kind of a steady stream of up and down, and then... Back in September, we actually converted one of the rooms into like a, we call it the red dojo. So we cleared out the entire room and we bought grappling mats and laid the room with mats. So it's got like punching bag, pads, mats. Um, it has a few other bits and bobs, if I recall right as well. And trained it in, turned it into a training room uh, for our members because we think fundamentally part of kind of the left is that it should be able to defend itself. And the reality is, is that nine times out of 10, um, many of us are attending meetings and sitting around the table, and there's people talking about fighting fascists, and you know they're not physically capable to do that. So, kind of w- this 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 reality is going to dawn on people sooner or later, um, and society is being polarized
0: as well. So, it's all the more important. You said something earlier that I definitely like to touch on, but just before we move on from the, actually the the um, the squad itself, is it okay to say how many residents you have at the squad? Yeah. yeah. So, what's the what's the count at the minute? It's five right now. And then you just have like other members of the Connolly Youth Movement who are kind of a part of the community around the squad, I guess.
1: Yeah, so the idea is, is that, and I can understand in wintertime, the house would be a lot less busier because it's quite cold here. It's not the best of places to spend time. But once, um, first of all, exams finish for people, and once it's closer, I guess, to just longer days and it's warmer, um, It'll be quite busy here, I'll put it that way. It'll be kind of come and go. And we have a few extra people who have keys, for example, who can come and go anyway. So it's not your regular run of the mill kind of
0: place. You, you yeah. mentioned that society today is, is polarized and that's definitely something that you wouldn't you don't have to scratch the surface too much to feel the way that the right and the left have become further and further apart. Um and I think that one of the reasons that I'm glad to be here talking to you is that the left doesn't really seem to have as big of a platform as the right in the media today, with the way through social media and um, through the mainstream media as well. What are the things at the minute that are polarizing the, the the two sides? Um. Well, I think the first question is,
1: for me anyway, when addressing a kind of a a big question like that, is where does the polarization come from, or why are people so alienated from society that they have to feel polarized? Subsequently, so I I think there's part of it, not part of it, fundamentally, within a capitalist society, people are alienated from their workplace. They're alienated from their workmates because they form artificial or shallow relationships in the workplace. Um, They're alienated from their family to some degree because they can't spend the time they would choose to otherwise because of all the other factors that come in within the capitalist framework. So what you have is, a lot of really pissed off people who are finding it difficult to find a place for themselves in society and an endless barrage of propaganda and information predominantly from the hegemonic and from the ruling class predominantly from those who own all the media talking about or trying to direct them to what they believe should be the issues and more often than not the media of the ruling class are directing a significant portion of the working class towards issues that aren't really issues, non-issues, you know. Um, this talk, this right-wing talking point, the great, dis- the, what is it, the great displacement, um, that's the main right-wing talking point, for example, in Western society, that there's a plan by government to displace large amounts of um, ethnic populations by migrants. But the problem is, this is actually genuinely being picked up on, Be- and part of it like, there's a multifaceted argument here is that it's being picked up on because it's not being coherently challenged by the left. But I'm not trying to say that in order to blame the left. But it is a back and forth process. Like, if, if there are certain arguments that are presented by the right or by um, the right's kind of media or propaganda tools and the left fails to answer them, then it's safe to conclude that those arguments kind of take root within people's minds. So if something keeps getting <coughs> repeated over and over again and there's no response well, some people out there are
0: going to believe it. So I think this is going to be a fairly big question, but I'm going to try and get you to summarize these things because it's something that, because of the fact that I'm, I'm interested in, in politics and stuff like that in general, um, I feel like I have maybe like more of a familiarity with some of the terms that are being used in the media today that result in some of this polarization that you're talking about. But then a lot of times people ask me, they're like, well, what does this mean? What does that mean? Like, what is, what is is left-wing? What is right-wing? What is capitalism? What is socialism, communism, Marxism? I think we could maybe run through some of the main terms at the minute. No, that's kind of a big question, but I'm just thinking in terms of, like, the people who are listening to this, we don't know, like, where they're, what starting point they have, and I want them to get a clear picture of your opinions and your views from this podcast. So I think that maybe, like, they have a little bit of... Uh, run through of some of the main terms, if, if, that's, if, if you, if you can. Yeah,
1: no it, problem. Um, so where will we start? Well, what is capitalism? Capitalism is the method of organising society in the interests of capitalists. Kind of stupid, right? But that's, that's essentially what capitalism is. And then the next question is, well, who are the capitalists? That's I think that's the next logical conclusion. Um, capitalists are people who own assets and continue to reproduce wealth or they own wealth and continue to reproduce wealth again very vague and very broad so i think the next question is well what's capital or um yeah what, what what's capital i guess if capitalists are people who own capital to reproduce wealth then what is capital in many ways capital can be anything used to create further wealth so if you own three homes and rent out two of them two of your homes become capital and thereby making you a capitalist if you own a factory and produce toothbrushes you're a capitalist because you own the capital that is the factory Um, then i suppose what is wealth or who produces wealth and how do we understand the production of wealth now a lot of kind of americanized ideas talk about wealth as if it's something in the vacuum it's just made by itself you know it's like wealth grows on trees But I think as a Marxist, we have to narrow it down and we have to explain it over and over again, is that, well, wealth is produced by the workers because in the examples I gave to you, for example, in neither of these situations, no wealth is created until a worker, which is probably me, yourself, or any of our listeners, actually puts tools to task and creates something. So in the factory example, and I'll use the factory example, a lot just to highlight the point nothing will ever get done if workers aren't making it happen essentially so a capitalist is a person who owns something it doesn't have to be a person a person or entity or third party or a company um and they have a relationship to the buildings or to the factory whereby they benefit and the wealth that's created essentially goes into their pocket that's essentially who a capitalist is so When we refer to capitalists, usually there's another term, there's the ruling class, and we call them the ruling class quite simply because their economic influence permits them to influence the rest of society. It it permits them to exert so much power on, say, elected officials in Ireland that policy is written to their favourable or in their favour. So we call them the ruling class. And Connolly had a quote for it, he said, governments and capitalist societies are about committees of the rich to manage the affairs of the rich because he could see the connection as well the William Martin Murphy of yesterday is the Dennis O'Brien of today Um, that's the ruling class then we have to get onto questions like when a worker works uh, and they produce wealth kind of what happens to it you know and who's the benefactor of it in a more technical way so for this example I'll use a cafe so Let's take Cork Coffee Roasters. I always get a coffee there. You go into Cork Coffee Roasters and you get your cup of coffee for three euro. On an average hour, in a busy hour, a barista in there will sell about 50 cups of coffee. Um, And we both know that 50 cups of coffee doesn't equal to the wage they make. So how is their wage determined? And what happens to the other cups of coffee that they sell? What happens to the profit they make? Well, the employer and in this case the capitalist, sets an amount that they're willing to pay as minimum wage. In this case, it's governed by legislation, uh, purely because trade unions were strong enough to set minimum wage here at at some point in history. The capitalist sets the minimum wage, which, for argument's sake, let's say is 10 euros, and the barista will sell three cups of coffee and make that 10, 10 euros. The other 47 cups of coffee that they sell will not go into the pocket of the barista or the worker. It'll go into the pocket of the capitalist. And this relationship is recreated in every single workplace in the country, in every single place you go to, uh, be it one that produces something directly, such as toothbrushes, or be it one that sells something, uh, such as food or something to drink. So what you have is a method of organizing society that really only benefits one small part of society. So then we're on to the question of, well, what is left-wing and what is right-wing? Uh, my understanding of these terms is that the left wing is the group of people who politically represent the workers, the people who work on a day-to-day basis and are essentially robbed from because they don't get the full value of their work. That's what it boils down to. And the right wing are those who uphold the method of organising society known as capitalism. So then,
0: by that definition, like what's the alternative in terms of the person who's serving coffee? Like what's what should that person be striving for as a way that would better serve their time, like on earth, uh, make it a better time? Or well, <laughs> like, not, not a loaded question at all there. Um, <laughs> like I'm thinking that, per- that example that you gave for the coffee shop, right? Yeah. Like, well, um, first of all, the, if you look at the figures of that, you have to obviously take out the cost of producing the cup yes. of coffee outside of the €3. Euro. Like, so the wages yeah. now the- is the w- rent. Which is
1: worth mentioning, actually, is that a lot of the cafes here will import from low-wage economies. So the cost of the coffee beans that they get is dirt cheap. It's, it's nothing <coughs> compared to... So when we were doing research on uh, Costa Coffee, for example, we found out that they were getting 5 kilograms for €3 euro of coffee beans. Now, you can understand the profit margins are incredible on five kilograms of coffee for something like, what was it, 15 euro, I think I mentioned, or
0: something very low cost, anyway. The example of... And that's not to be signalling out like coffee roasters. But business like that, businesses like that are mm-hmm. small local businesses yeah. where you could make the argument that they're actually benefiting the community they're in, whereas cost of coffee is a different yeah. kettle of fish. Like that's Absolutely. a one way street yeah. where someone who lives in some other country is making astronomical profits. Yeah. So how do we differentiate between those two kind of s- those two games? It seems like two different sets of um it seems like two separate things. But if we're going simple, the simple model of what's capitalism in the broader sense yes. and what's socialism in the broader yes. sense, they're the same thing. They're both stuck in the capitalist thing, uh, but effectively, yeah. So is that a fair argument? But say, for example, like uh, like the business that I run in, in, in the city centre, like is is for sure the people who work there are benefiting from working there in the sense because of the way that we're set up that the, that it's a cyclical thing, like that they're getting more benefit than just the wages that they're getting and the wages they're getting mm-hmm. are good but then they're also getting other opportunities as young coaches that they can then move on and everyone is just passing through for us anyway so the thing is to help them become as as trained in whatever area they want to be trained in as uh, well they're with us and then they move on and then they go off and do something else that they want to do in their life like that's a part of the capitalist model as well and because it of the is, fact that yeah. we do, like, say, we have events around our service that are free to break down any barrier to entry for people like long table lunches where people just bring sure food, the book club which is free, movie nights, and um, provide a service that is beneficial to the people who are getting the service, it's beneficial to the people mm-hmm. who are given the service because they're getting paid proper money and they're doing something worthwhile and benefiting their community. Uh, for me like and and I would be like very like left wing minded person myself and but I know that I'm a part of the capitalist game well but, we all are yeah exactly so h- how do we how do we like square that circle or Okay whatever? um
1: well I think first and foremost when we talk about kind of differentiating there's a bit of there's a little bit of moralizing where we say kind of oh the small business owner versus the big the big business owner I don't think it's our objective to give it a moral tinge, first and foremost, in the sense that first we have to understand what are the mechanics of capitalist society, like how does it actually function? So when I say that, I'm not trying to equate the two, because I, I agree with you, we should differentiate. I'm not trying to equate the two as if we should take them on in the exact same way. If anything, I'd be of the view that we take on to all the multinationals before we deal with anything else. That's, that would be my, kind of my take on it, and I think I'd find a lot of agreement among comrades in arms. But ultimately, the mechanics of capitalism... And how Marx explains it in his pamphlet, Wage, Labour, and Capital, or Value, Price, and Profit, is the same for small businesses. So small capitalists or big capitalists, their relationship uh, to capital and to their workers is the same. How do you square that circle? Uh, fundamentally, I think we need to be unionising people. That's kind of where it begins, in my opinion, um, People need to know that they have a position in their workplace that's quite valuable, especially in places that are like Costa, which appropriate super profits. They need to know that they can bargain uh, for better in their workplace as well. So I think it begins with trade unions on a very practical level. But on a long-term level, it's the social ownership of capital is what we're talking about, the public ownership of capital. So in all these places, I, I don't know how... The ins and outs of, say, for example, a fitness center operate, but I do know that in places where something is produced, that's a bit more clear, such as a commodity that you consume. Whereas a fitness center is slightly different because the entire makeup is is that you're not giving an item, you're not giving a commodity to somebody. You're actually doing something else, and that there's there's an interesting comment to make on fitness in general is that health in capitalist society is a commodity. If you can afford to be healthy, you can be healthy. If you can't afford to be healthy, well, best of luck, buddy, because that's how it is. So I think that's a whole different discussion in of itself uh, as opposed to this, because I don't think people should be unhealthy in a socialist society anyway. And socialist society should kind of endeavor to look after them in that sense. But that's that's, that's a whole different discussion. Um, for the Costas and um, Gloria Jeans and coffee roasters of this world, I think the first step is that, those workers see the reality is is if those workers join a trade union, they themselves will see that their relationship to their employer, big or small, is the same. That they're still and their position is the same and their property wages are probably the same as well. And that's kind of the relationship that it boils down to is that there's people who own things and there's people who don't. I think it's worth noting that businesses can be ethical, they can pay a living wage, but ultimately and at the end of the day they're still small capitalists who benefit off the fact that they have other people working jobs and producing wealth for them. That's that's fundamentally what it boils down to, and that's a problem. Now, one might ask: Does that mean a socialist society, a hypothetical one, doesn't have room for small businesses? I think in this day and age, it probably does. Um, where there is nobody employed but the actual owner of the business, because fundamentally, what we're talking about in a capitalist society is that if I hire you. To do a job and I pay you 10 euros for it but the value of your job is 30 euros an hour and I get 20 euros off the top which is essentially what happens everywhere then I'm exploiting you and our objective is to end that exploitation forever.
0: What you're saying then is I guess that's kind of the textbook explanation of that that if if we, if there was say another another person who was sitting here who had kind of was another member of the Connolly Youth Movement yeah. or whatever they would kind of be saying the same thing. It seems to be that that argument and a lot of people triggers a pretty negative reaction. Yeah. And what are the most negative reactions that you get when you when you when you say those things?
1: Um, the most negative reactions tend to have nothing to do with the actual arguments themselves. Uh, one of the most frequent things the Connolly Youth Movement, not the name, is confronted about is Joseph Stalin despite having no connection with the person in question. So the most negative reactions are often the most irrelevant reactions as well. And the reason they're like that is, so I went through the education and through the schooling system here, and it's firmly of a certain persuasion that gives you a firm set of beliefs about the world and about the historiography of society and Eastern and Western Europe, that's not exactly favorably disposed towards socialism. And Every aspect of the education system, it's not just the books, the history books in school and the junior cert and leaving cert that tell you, you know, socialism, that's kind of not good, you should stay away from that, what we have is good, stay away from that. It's also how you're brought up, you're brought up as an individual, you're brought up to view the world and yourself and your place in it as an individual, you're not brought up to view that you don't actually exist in a vacuum and you're just kind of uh, floating around and bumping into other people that society kind of works collectively one way or the other. Now, right now, it works collectively to make the capitalist richer, but perhaps it could work alternatively. So the most reg- negative reactions tend to be the least kind of relevant ones. You know, what about my opportunities to make my own business? You know, uh, stuff that's not really relevant to a person's conditions. Like, they might be paying disproportionate rent, working a minimum wage job, but because they've been reared in such a way to believe that they're... they're what do we call them, temporarily impoverished millionaires, that they believe that I'm infringing on their supposed right to become a millionaire when chances are they probably won't become a millionaire. Like, so there's outrage about things that aren't real or are deliberately planted in people's consciousness in order to keep them distracted from kind of their own misery, their own low wages, their own high rent, their own difficult living conditions, or their own necessity to
0: migrate because they can't, they, they can't make it. But then, does that arg- argument have some merit if we're putting the the model of like a, a business, we're kind of saying that's a bad model because it exploits the people who are working in the business. Mm-hmm. But say, for example, I'm, okay, just like, say in my, my personal case, yeah. I started a business about six years ago yeah. and I know for a fact that it's a really good service that I, I, I fucking love the business that we have because yeah. I feel like I'm doing something useful for people. People come in, they're, all happy because they're getting something that they wouldn't otherwise get based on like a personal connection Mm -hmm. and the people who work there I know are happy because they're still there and they're they're developing and they're enjoying it and they get the same sense of satisfaction working with someone and building connections with people as I do and we're all kind of singing off the same page and that and that essence so and, and I know like, say someone else who has got a business who sells really nice food and like sources the food from local farmers who have grown the food, and they've supported their families, and then they've exchanged that food for money to the person who owns the cafe. Mm-hmm. He's used his skills to make it into something that's really nice to eat, and then other people come and bat, and then they become like they get like a sense of joy from eating that food or sharing it with their family. Yeah. So like that seems like all positive stuff. I I, I think it sounds like you've
1: made. You've made it positive with your personal approach to it, for example. But the reality is, is first and foremost, is that uh, 80% of small businesses fail in the first five years. So even the idea that this average Joe can go and set up their small business is a myth. It's, it's simply not true. Statistically, it's not true. And that's what we have to go by. And I think the second, thing, the second thing in that is that I'm not trying to take away from the success stories that exist, the kind of the, it works for us what I'm trying to point out is that it doesn't work for 80% of the working class and that's where the problem lies so the approach I think we're taking isn't to specifically say like right okay you have to pass over your health and fitness studio that that's kind of it no it's it's more like continue what you're doing but we have a battle to win for the majority of disenfranchised, non-unionised, non-organised minimum
0: wage workers in Ireland. I think that's kind of how I would answer that. And I'm not disagreeing with you with what you're saying at all there, but basically it's important for me to say that the reason that our business is like this is because of the fact that I realise I can see that everyone else basically who's in the same market as us is doing it in a way that's not ethical and it's not like mutually beneficial to all the parties that are involved in the transactions of the business, the yeah. staff, the people who are coming to the business and all the other people who are, around, who are in the business who help us. So, um, it's interesting to, um, I guess just over the last five or six years have become involved in that scene where we're like really passionate about developing something yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, interesting. Where are we going to go from here? Yeah, um,
1: well, it's, it's, it's curious because health... You, like, I think in most capitalist countries, there's a problem, um, mm. for Let's example... Talk about this. Huh? Yeah. With, well, with unhealthy eating. Um, and part of it comes from the fact that every country is littered with fast food places and access to normal food is filtered out. And in fact, obesity rates suggest that it's people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds that refer to junk food before they go out and cook something. So there's a connection between the disenfranchised kind of lower socioeconomic brackets referring to multinational fast food and therefore damaging their health consistently. And it boils down to the fact that the state kind of also takes a very hands-off approach to young people's health. Like, I don't know, did you go to school in the 26 counties? Well, no, in the six counties. Okay. And I don't know what kind of approach it was taking to physical education, but here you got one double class a week as your physical education. And that kind of makes you think because is that really enough for any young person to have a kind of healthy standard of living um, in their life? I I, I don't really think it is compared to how much crap essentially they're subject to in every other aspect of life. So it kind of leads to health in general and it leads to the approach that the Connolly Youth Movement has been uh, taking is that we don't believe health should be something that functions as a commodity like there shouldn't be any uh fee paying gyms in society in my view because people uh shouldn't be in such a position that they have never been educated on the importance of maintaining a degree of physical health that there's there's a market there's a lucrative market for upholding people's health for selling them products probably that they don't need because of how society is structured, because it's monetized. It's monetized to go and keep yourself fit. And of course, like there's a number of other aspects. Um so part of the red dojo process isn't just to kind of hit pads and grapple and do a bit of jujitsu, it's also to socially own our health, to keep each other motivated, that it's a good thing for you, not because of kind of factors that are say in advertising, it's good for you because it's good for you, it's good for your mental well being and your physical well being.
0: I would agree with you, and actually, a really nice example is um, so the area that I'm from in West Belfast is the house that we grew up in is three miles even to the city centre. And a couple of years ago, I walked down the road, and I've said this on the podcast before, but um, the I took a tally of all the businesses, and in the three mile stretch, there was over six. There's over there was over fifty at the time, but it's over sixty now. Uh, yeah. Takeaway restaurants.
1: Yeah. In a yeah. three
0: mile stretch, and that's it. It's. Uh, West Belfast is one of the most uh, socially underdeveloped areas in the yeah. whole of Ireland, and to, si- to see the the amount and the saturation of fast food restaurants, right, yeah. there compared to another sh- road that's sort of parallel to the Andersonstown Road and the Falls Road. It's all like boutique restaurants, uh, beauty, health spas, and stuff like yeah. that. But talking about there about health, obviously, is the area that I spend. The vast majority of every day in people are paying to come to us for stuff, and some instances that I guess we shouldn't be there to have to do that. For example, we do a lot of kids, a lot of work with kids who have disabilities, Mm -hmm. and it's not a huge stretch of the imagination to say that if someone has a physical disability or a medical condition that's going to be benefited from some form of physical exercise or training, then that should be provided for free. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. Yes. That's 100%. Something I've been thinking about recently is is the whole idea of fitness. Like The whole idea of fitness really is you could make the argument, or certainly I've been making the argument in my own head about it, that it's just a way to keep people a little bit more distracted, a little bit more consumed by themselves. Mm-hmm. As fitness is marketed in general, as advertised, yeah. it's about especially in the, like the selfie culture and the social media where you're taking pictures of yourself in the gym, you're uh, becoming more concerned with your own sense of like how you're looking and stuff like that yeah. there, which makes you less concerned with what's happening around yeah. you. Yeah. So in a way, it's kind of a distraction. So obviously what we're doing is trying to flip that on its head and move away from that area, which is, I think, which is why we've become... Uh, because the reason we're still able to keep going and the people are enjoying what we're doing is that we're trying to do something if people are coming to us I'm not saying this to promote what we're doing I'm just saying it to explain the the alternative ways that are possible to do it but when people are coming to us the main thing that we want to do is teach them something useful teach them the skill that we're very good at that we can pass on to them that they can then carry on for the rest of their lives that's in vast contrast to going into like a commercial gym where you're not really learning anything and you're not doing it. You're really just like going in there to try and move around, like without any real purpose, like a hamster on a wheel. Like for example, if you guys are doing um, martial arts and stuff in the room upstairs, that has a very definite purpose. There's connection with people. There's uh, you're learning something, you're becoming stronger in body and mind. If you go to a commercial gym, when you think about what the setup is there, it's a big room with a lot of machines. It doesn't require any other person to be there. Really, you just need one person on the door to make sure that nobody dies. So there's no real transfer of expertise and there's no instruction needed for the person to do it, but there's no real purpose for what they're doing other than just coming in, sweating it up for half an hour and leaving again. Um, And I think that's not really a good value prospect in terms of health and fitness. And then the other side of it is the food and how supplements are marketed and products. It's basically... Just based around selling people shit that they don't need and they're not really going to value from. So I think that's that's a debate that I haven't really thought through to its full logical conclusion yet. But it's definitely something that's that's a big factor in what we do, and I think it's an important like the fitness health in general is. I think it's impossible to to take it away from the political situation that a, that a society is is, is in. It's, they're one and the same, and in, in that the powers that are controlling the society are also controlling how healthy people are going to be through the way that they're they're making things available or the food that they're making available to people and stuff like that. There, so it's interesting to hear you talk yeah, about. Yeah,
1: and it. and of course, then I I think it has to be commented upon is that society kind of consciously or not sets certain standards that it believes its people should aspire to, and these standards are usually reflected in advertising so somebody who doesn't feel themselves to live up to the standards that they're bombarded with by society then feels obliged to change themselves so the entire process of and i put in becoming healthy kind of in inverted commas is unhealthy it's unhealthy it's your personal relationship with your body and then it's also your relationship with the health industry which is, is it run to look after your health? It's run to maximize the amount of profit that it can make. Um, And I think it kind of brings us to the discussion as to how the right and right-wing speakers capitalize on aspects of lack of healthiness in order to build their own platforms. So for example, one of Jordan Peterson's um, major books, The 12 Rules on Life, has two interesting things. And we say them jokingly to each other because with a sense of irony uh one of them is clean your room and the other is wash your penis um these things are it, it's funny but if you think about it like they're common sense things among a, a, a pyramid of other things that you could say that are really common sense brush your teeth you know uh trim your nails so you don't kind of cut yourself or whatever and another of common common sense talking points and the reality is is that because the state and society almost takes either one or the other so you can either afford to be healthy or you can kind of live in the basement and you know your business is your own that the right has actually capitalized on predominantly young men who do fall into one of these categories and the category of young men that fall into this kind of this other one this this one that's shunned by capitalist society who is capitalizing and who's mobilizing them and it's not the left, I can tell you that much, but it is the right when they come out. Simple statements like that, but in reality, very much needed statements. Things like looking after your health is good for you, but in a in a conscious kind of, um, I would say, non-commodified way. Like, you can be happy about your body without having to fit anybody's standards, as long as you find a degree of happiness with it. But because we have this dictomy where You can only be happy with your body if you look like fucking Arnold Schwarzenegger there on the billboard.
0: And in order to look like him, you have to rake out a lot of money into the gym, you know, this. Yeah. yeah. And something that you mentioned there about the advertising and like advertising as as an industry is built on making people feel like shit. Yeah. So that then the person who's advertising can be like, but we have the answer this is it. All you need to do is like swap yes. a wee bit of money. Yeah. And health, is different. Yeah. health is exactly the same. And that's like definitely something that is one of the, the major, major things that we address with the way that we, um, put ourselves forward so that it's, it's not negative like that there. Yeah. And I think the, the thing that maybe another addition to the, the thing that I was saying about the the health industry and the fitness industry as such being a form of distraction for people ties in it it just came to mind when you said that thing about i haven't read that book 12 rules of life but i flicked through the the summary or whatever and i've seen the rules and whatever and the one about uh cleaning your room to me in a way is a thing that i see a lot of the time coming from the um from the right let's say yeah. is that it's putting responsibility back on the individual which I guess you could say was a major component of Maggie Thatcher's uh, like privatisation yeah. and breaking down of unions and breaking breaking down of communities I guess to mm-hmm. put the responsibility back on the individual and the family and that's it and there's nothing else outside that there. you look after your own wee gardener and it'll be sweet yeah. and in a way then that that detracts your attention from what's going on around you. Yeah. And I think it's important, of course, to take individual responsibility for your personal health as much as possible, yeah. but it's also very important to acknowledge the fact that everyone hasn't got the same opportunities to yeah. do that and that there are certain things in society that determine that you're more likely to have diabetes or have uh, get cancer or have high blood pressure or die from heart attack and a lot of those factors are based on your social economic circumstances where you're born where you go to school and and that kind of stuff
1: yeah um there's an interesting element to it as well as to how the left and right play out with these kind of suggestions and these discussions. So I agree with you that it is probably an attempt to individualize the problem. But to me, the context in which he says it seems to be as a common sense, like self-help psychological thing. Like if you go clean your room, you'll feel a little bit better about yourself. And I, I think that's more to do with his approach than anything else. I actually don't think he's clever enough to compare it to like anything more elaborate than that. Um, and people who follow him seem to find something or an element of truth to what he's saying. And as a leftist, it's our responsibility to first of all understand our opponent's argument and then to be able to, pre- on the basis of being able to understand it, present a coherent counter-argument. And one of the things... One of the great failings, I think, of the left is to actually address things like physical health in a coherent kind of way, because, I need to collect my thoughts here, in effect, this idea that every person is an individual and you can't infringe on their individual rights has actually been accepted by the left. So imposing something like a healthy standard of living or a political organisation, say, saying every member must have you know, a certain standard of living that looks after their own well-being is considered an infringement, for example, on their I- individuality. And that's, the, that's one of the greatest triumphs of kind of capitalist society is that even the left we have today, uh, we're still fighting a consistent battle to change the way people interact with each other and how they see their kind of individuality as part of a collective. Because, for example, we had our Congress not too long ago And there was a resolution. It was titled On Counterculture. And uh, I'm going to paraphrase because I'm very bad for coding. But one of the things it said was that it's the responsibility of the organization to look after the mental, physical and emotional well-being of our membership. And there was kind of a discussion about it because some people felt that, well, it was was a bit imposing. You know, it kind of carried connotations is that you need to do something that's beyond kind of, say, just your run-of-the-mill activism. And the reality is, is that you do need to do something primarily because if you're raised from an early age to believe a certain way, to act a certain way, and to think a certain way, then you're raised in the culture of capitalist society. So the question is, is how do you take away from that? How do you develop a counterculture that not only challenges it, but changes your way of thinking kind of, and interacting with people? How do, you, how do you stop seeing yourself as an individual and a part of society? And like, that's, the, the, that's the battle, I think, that the left is by and large losing because they still see people who come and go as a collection of individuals rather than, as I don't know, as Connolly said, the militant army of labor, one whole unit challenging
0: organized capital. Um, To come back to the point that you made there about, or to come back to to Jordan Peterson's thing again, I remember I, I was, um, Ended up talking to someone who I hadn't known previous to this night that I met him. We were having like chatting away whatever, over a couple of pints, and I ended up talking about Jordan Peterson, and he ended up getting into a really heated debate about it because I am from Belfast, he's from Cork, but we both had came from similar backgrounds in terms of the type of area that we grew up in and stuff like that, and he was just Jordan Peterson, absolute fanatic, and the the main thrust of his argument was that, well, look at me, I, I was born in a working class area, I'm, I'm sweet, I'm making loads of money now, everyone could do it, like Jordan, because of Jordan Peterson, you re- read this shit, you look after your stuff, you clean your room, this is the shit, I did it, look me, And then, but in essence, the vibe that I was getting was he was turning around to the rest of the people who were still in the working class area that he came from, and be like, come on, everyone, let's go, I did it, you you can all do it, mm-hmm. but ignoring the fact that there were so many very strong social factors there that were yeah, he broke through because maybe he's an exceptional person. He has, he had the luck of the draw and the motivation and the education or whatever to get himself out of poverty and in the situation where he was earning more money than the people that generally he was friends with when he was kids. But then I think that for people that it, it, it's important to realize that if you make it out of poverty... It's not to say that you had everyone started off on an even keel and you had the same opportunities as everybody else. Like uh, that's an important thing, but the th- uh, that came to mind there for me. And the thing that you're talking about about there about the, the arguments that the left are losing, like with talking in broad strokes, would you think it would be fair to say that the right, pl- the right side of the political spectrum, by and large, place the responsibility for health and for success on the individual and with the same broad strokes, the left place the responsibility for success and wealth or success and like happiness and living a fulfilling life, uh, on the collective. When
1: they argue about how they organize society, they do, but in practice, I think they both place it on the individual. And what I mean by that is, is that, um, The left, for fear of infringing on an individual's rights, doesn't actually question things that should be questioned. So it doesn't challenge the fact that, say, a member of a leftist organization um, will lead a certain lifestyle or numerous members will lead certain lifestyles that are clearly kind of not good for them for fear of being seen in a certain way, it doesn't actually challenge that lifestyle and maybe set the bar at a certain level and say, look, this political organization will do its best to endeavor that everybody can meet this bar because because it's objectively good for you to just to be healthy, for example. Um, whereas the right isn't bound by this argument. Um, part of the reason it's not bound by this argument is that because it doesn't take like um, a contrarian position to say capitalism whereas so this is a really multifaceted kind of question um, the right doesn't isn't doesn't take opposition to capitalism which means it doesn't take opposition to various features of capitalism whereas because the left is juxtapositioned against capitalism it takes various uh, contrary positions to capitalism which more than often includes how you lead your life so what strikes me is that there is no kind of introspection on at what point do you say, do you kind of stop saying that lead, doing everything the opposite of capitalism is a is a kind of correct thing to do. Like being to the opposite of capitalism doesn't necessarily mean it's anti-capitalist or it's even good for you or it's politically correct. You know, that kind of way. Whereas the right isn't bound by any of these things. They can say we're going to be disciplined, we're going to be organized and we're going to go do X, Y, and Z, and we kind of have no contra- internal kind of logical contradictions here because that's very well within kind of the nature of what capitalism is. And then if everybody kind of sticks out for themselves, you can do good in this organization. So they have, they, they have a better kind of, um, or they're less regulated by essentially what they're standing for, whereas the left is so wrapped up in this idea that nobody can criticize each other and you can't kind of say, tell somebody, you know, they should probably clean the room, like, for example, because it's full of rubbish or whatever, and it's probably bad for their hygiene, bad for their mental health, and bad for their health, that this is some sort of oppression of the individual. So the irony is actually, I think, to answer your question, it's the opposite, is that the right is extremely well-organised and not bound by these internal contradictions, and the left seems to safeguard the rights of the individual in a way that's kind of ironic because it does stand for the collective ownership of society it does stand for the public ownership of society but it refuses to kind of coherently question whether a person can be acting extremely earnestly and what role does your political organization have in that apparently to some organizations none you can be you can have quite like you can be an alcoholic for example and i'm not trying to Say that that's a choice as well, but it's in my view, it's the role of a political organisation to help people with addiction issues. You know, to not to simply watch and kind of let them spiral
0: into something. It's it's their role to uplift them and try to help them solve them. As far as I understand it, it's interesting that to hear you talking about that because it would probably be fair to say that one of the main criticisms, or the most one of the most common criticisms by the right of the left, is they'll say, "Well, like you just you guys just want." to take all the wealth away from the people who have worked hard for it. You guys want everyone to be the same. And what will happen then, nobody will be, nobody will work because you'll just get people who are just mooching off yeah. the state. And um, so I think that kind of addresses that issue in a way, does it?
1: Yeah, I, I see what you're saying cause, because the right is essentially observing that criticism and using it to funnel their own kind of their image of the world they're saying that the left is exactly all these things and some sections of the left are all these things and that's reality and they're not willing to correct that like I was reading an Irish Times article about another squat in Dublin and a person was interviewed from inside it and they were like well why did you do this was it to highlight the housing crisis no was it to do political stuff no the person in question wanted more time to paint and you kind of have to Ask the question as to whether this is how one politicizes something like squatting—that it's their individual desire that they need time more, more time to paint. That's why they squatted, or is there something connected to making a political stand against the housing crisis and against landlordism? You know, and that's kind of that's I think that's what we're dealing with in many positions. Is that numerous sections of the left are exactly like that, and from my observation, again, it goes back to that example where I've sat in rooms. And we're talking about kind of revolution or whatever. And, you know, I'm sitting there kind of stifling laughter because I know that several of these people can't defend themselves physically, for example. And the right is rising. The right is, as we saw in New Zealand, going around killing people. And the left is kind of sitting around and saying, well, you can't force me to be physically fit to defend myself, but I'm going to sit here at this table and talk to you about how we're going to overthrow capitalism and we're fucking communists and I'm going to go fight fascists. And it's like... It's it's surreal, you know, it's, you're, you're sitting there and going kind of what, like you're, you're almost jamming mentally because you can't comprehend what's going on.
0: Like, without knowing anything about that, that guy that you just mentioned there, who has the squat in Dublin, who wanted more time to paint, I, you could, in my head, it's just kind of flicking little ideas of the arts and the the role that art has in yeah. society as well. And that's another probably topic that probably runs in somewhat in parallel to the the, the health yeah. Uh Argument that we we're just our discussion that we just had there in that art has a very important function in society that is becoming arguably less and less and less with the more that people are being commodified and the, the the free time that people have is probably becoming less with the longer hours that people are working or the more the rent that goes up the more hours people have to work to pay the rent and the less free time they have therefore the creative elements that. Can't generally be uh, done, in like, oh, have got thirty minutes to do your art, there and I go and do it. That uh, probably parallel somewhat to the uh, to the health thing. What was I going to ask you? Um, yes, so we have this thing, we have this polarization, we have the. Uh, it'd be really cool to hear you talk a little bit more about the, about the Connolly Youth Movement and and Connolly himself. But uh, seeing as you kind of started talking about it there, about how the left have. Maybe ambitions or have the the perceived like necessity to fight against the right what's the in Ireland like what's the best case scenario like there, there it's probably fair to say there's not going to be a like a revolution of armed left wing people who are going to go and fight against capitalism in Ireland at the minute like uh, that's with that, at the minute no do you think there's a possibility in the
1: future I do actually um how a strategy or how political directive or direction is built by any organization is built on the conditions of society. So what's happening all around us and what's the working class kind of subject to? And there's a few kind of key things that have happened in Ireland that, from my historical reading of Irish history, have never happened before. So the first thing is, since the formation of the Free State, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael always dominated the elections they got 90 percent of a combined vote something like this up until the 1980s then it dropped to 80 percent then it was again 90 percent. but in the 2011 general election um they got less than 50 percent, and that kind of tells you as to what people think about the political parties that generation after generation they voted for and the second thing is the role of the catholic church the biggest opponent to social change in ireland or one of them has been the catholic church it has always fallen either on the side of the British state, or the, like Irish unionists, um, or any other number of kind of figures of authority that were anything but the socially deprived people trying to rise up and try to do something. They've always denounced the Fenian Brotherhood, the anti-treaty IRA, and they made quite a big kind of task out of denouncing communists for the last 70 years as well. But look at where the Catholic Church in the 26 counties is at now. It's nowhere to be seen in terms of political discourse. It has to hide in order to not for its officials and its representatives to not make stupid comments that will completely come down on it. And every time it does seem to make a comment, it seems to be the wrong comment. Um, in the abortion referendum, it was quite clear that the church was not on the side of progress. Again. But because they've been racked by so many scandals in the last 10 years, their influence, I think, over society is over. And finally, there was an interesting poll taken in 2016 by the european broadcasting network that asked 50,000 young people between the age of 18 and 25 in ireland if there was an uprising against the government tomorrow would you participate in it well 52 percent of them said yes they would and in my opinion as a as a communist i put all these three factors together and i say to myself well that sounds like a very pissed off generation of young people that aren't going to roll over and play dead like previous generations have but might actually want to do something. Um, From union organizing and from speaking to people in the streets, the anger is palpable. It's like it's in the atmosphere. It's like in the air. You walk around Cork or any other. It's almost like you can feel how angry people are, but they don't know what to do. They don't know how to express that anger. And I think that the role of communists is to give clarity to that anger, to explain this is how capitalism works. Those are the fucking enemies over there. Those are the people who aid and abet them. The Labour Party, they're not socialists because, because of X, Y, and Z. And I think that's the role of communists. And when it all comes together, when capitalism falls into crisis again, for example, I can't foretell the future. But I can certainly say is that looking back retrospectively, that's exactly how revolutions start. There's a crisis that shakes society politically, economically, and socially. And suddenly the most disenfranchised, which is the majority of society, decides
0: they've had enough. And then what happens like, there's a few things there uh, that you mentioned that would be cool to kind of uh, thrash them out a little bit further but first of all that pull that you mentioned when it said you said armed revolution yeah was that was the thing? so yeah. that's like obviously armed struggle against yeah. a- an enemy uprising like, against the state yeah. within Ireland yeah I mean that's like a civil war it would be a class war I think is the correct term yeah well, uh, if you could, it would be a class war, but it would be Irish people fighting against other Irish people. It's possible, yeah. In essence, and I think that from a personal perspective, I feel like the people who are around about the same age as me—I'm thirty, going on thirty-four now—but give or t- I say, probably f- uh, five years less and five years more are, than me from the north are kind of the first generation in a long time that didn't have to fight against. Uh, an occupying army because of the fact that the Good Friday Agreement was signed in 1988 when I was 13 or 14. Mm. I think when talking about the possibility of armed struggle, in, our, in, in general, I've spoke to people who are in their 20s about this, and I've spoke to people who are in their 50s and 60s about this, mm. who did take part in the armed struggle. And I think that one thing that is sort of, I feel nearly like a responsibility to bring up is that talking about an armed struggle in theory can seem like a good idea but in practice it's going to involve like killing someone or finishing someone's life and wrecking their family and you see like I, I i can see people who are going through uh who are living lives of trauma because of things that happened 40 years ago mm-hmm. for me like I, I i don't think that that Ireland's going to end up in, in in an armed in a in a war situation again, Irish people fighting against Irish people because of the fact that, like the way you hear people talking about the way Brexit's going to happen, oh, and then the, one of the main things is oh, it's going to start up the Troubles again, it's going to yeah. start up the war again. And the war in the North kicked off because of mass uh, civil rights issues, yeah. housing, education, uh, sectarian and sectarian killings, and brutal force backed up by the state against sections of the population. Like Those things don't exist now, in, in in that form, yeah. So it's kind of a bit sensationalist to say then on the news that oh, it's going to st- it's going to start oh up yeah. like all the people in Belfast aren't going to go walk down to the border with uh, AK 47s to fight against the Brits again. I don't think even if even if it was the worst case situation of a hard border because of the fact that they have that first hand experience of coming through a conflict situation where um, and the reason I would say that the the armed struggle in the north finished is because it was just pla it was it's hard to maintain yeah. the that, sent, that that mentality of being the sort of siege mentality or the mentality of constantly being in danger or knowing that your next the next generation is going to have to go and fight, you're gonna end up dead or in jail yeah. or you're going to end up killing someone else and your life is fucked anyway. Yeah. In in a way. What do you think at the minute about the mainstream political parties that so you've mentioned Fianna and Phenophile as well, so you can touch on that if you want to, but uh be interesting to hear your opinions on the parties that would say that they're more to the left of the political spectrum mm. at the minute than the mean. It's curious to observe every year when
1: the state releases the funding it gives to political parties um, and how much money each political party is allocated for X, Y and Z. And... That's ultimately where the discussion should start, because what we seem to have is that the parties who are talking about ending capitalism are as entirely dependent and reliant on state funding as the parties that uphold capitalism. And then on a technical level, I suppose, you have to ask yourself, kind of, what, what does that mean on a day-to-day basis? Well, it means that offices, jobs, workers are maintained by state funding and by electoral success. Um, I'm not, say, entirely against electoral politics, but in a social democratic society, the rules of the game are to uphold capitalism, not to overthrow it. And the limitations of electoral politics don't seem to be taken into consideration by the major left-wing parties. And I have these debates consistently with members of Sinn Féin, with members of People Before Profit, with Solidarity and the Workers' Party, because... The criticism that the Conley Youth movement has put together is that the resources you're putting into winning seats and local authority should be going into industrial organising, for example, where you can actually fundamentally make a change to our class as a whole. It's not about uh, building a fiefdom of electoral seats around the country. That doesn't improve the lot of our class. Um, and it, what really drove that home for me is when Task, the think tank run by the trade unions, they released um, a breakdown of who receives the most wealth in Irish society. And what has obviously transpired since 2008 is that the majority of wealth goes to like 10% and 52% of people in Ireland get about 25% of their wealth. And that's grossly unfair. But the problem for me is is that where does electoral politics slide into that and how does the left interact with that? Have have the electoral victories increased the amount of wealth working class people get in Ireland? No. Has it stopped the amount of wealth the ruling class is getting in Ireland? No. So you have to ask yourself, if your tactics aren't working for your class, surely one should reconsider the tactics that you're applying. And I think that's my main criticism of the left, is that it's playing like the way I explain this to people when we're talking is that they say, oh, you should win elections, blah, blah, blah. And I kind of say, well, hold on a second, right? Who's written all the rules for how capitalist society runs? The capitalists have. Whose game is this, you know? So why should we play in accordance with how they structure themselves? Um, I think that's the approach the Connolly movement has taken that's distinct to essentially most of the left, primarily on the question of elections and how it impacts your political party. Like, if, you're, if so many of your workers are dependent on the money that comes in from electoral victory, then ultimately your party will, from what I can see, reorientate itself to maintaining and building up that electoral victory because you, ha- you're, you have a material dependency on it. It's, it's like it's a back-and-forth process. You know, the parties that are saying we're not electoral, but simultaneously all their officials, all their offices need they need them to continue winning elections in order to maintain them. So you have to ask yourself, is that a feasible kind of long-term strategy? Like, look at the Labour Party. It's not, it's not a left-wing party, but it's a, good, it's a good example of a political party that had um, a lot of TDs, had a lot of money, and then it lost 30 TDs. And all those people, many, many of the, particularly the lower-rung people, had to migrate, for example. So its success was dependent on it having a large electoral presence. And the left has clearly assumed this position as well, is that if, you, if we have X amount of TDs and X amount of councillors, this equals success. But not only does that, is that disproven by the task statistics, in my opinion, that's, that's how I interpret them anyway, is that if our class is doing worse off, then clearly electoral politics hasn't worked.
0: By that same example and that same token then, if there's a left-wing party that are, that's taken part in, say, constitutional political elections that become... That get enough support, electoral support, to become the dominant presence in government in the twenty six counties. Do you think that it's possible for that that party then or that uh, that entity to affect real life, like in kind a of socialist change at a governmental level in the Republic of Ireland?
1: Um, I think there's two points to be made here is if that came about hypothetically, I would support I would support a government like that. And I think that would fall pretty consistently with, say, my support of Maduro, even though I would argue he's not a... The PSUV isn't socialist and Venezuela isn't socialist. But because If that was to happen in Ireland,
0: article, to call that it would be Sinn Féin and a, and a bunch of probably other independent yeah, left-wing...
1: Yeah. And I, I, I think that's, like, a lot of the short-term goals for the communist perspective is harm reduction to the working class. That's essentially what it boils down to, is you try to mitigate the worst of it and you try to organise to overthrow capitalism. That's That's the kind of the... The bones of it and would Sinn Féin and a coalition of other political parties come to power you would say to yourself well that that is objectively better than Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil upholding it that's not socialism but it's objectively better and then the second question is would they be able to make meaningful change a lot of Irish law uh, as a first-year law mature student a lot of Irish law isn't just determined through statutes or the legislator it's also determined in the courts and how judges tend to interpret uh, certain kind of uh, contradictions and questions in the judicial sector. So there are certain things that are already closed off by the Supreme Court that the legislator couldn't, for example, address by virtue of the fact that once an appeal has been stressed out in the Supreme Court, it can never be appealed again. So if the Supreme Court ruled in a certain way, even a parliamentary majority wouldn't be able to do it. And then there's simply other things: is that who would permit? like, we talk about real socialist change, but what does that mean on a practical basis? Does that mean kind of better dole and better access to healthcare? Or does that mean collective ownership, I don't know, of um, the pharmaceuticals that exist in Ireland? Does that mean nationalising them to run them by the state? And I think that's another question that has to be asked is what does socialism mean for political parties like Sinn Féin, what does it mean for political parties like PPP? Because everybody seems to have their own interpretation of socialism. Um, I find that a lot of the left seems to be pointing at Nordic countries or other countries as an example of socialism, whereas I would suggest that none of these countries are socialist because private ownership is still, or private capital is still very much in the hands of the ruling class. Just because there's better breadcrumbs kind
0: of doled out doesn't doesn't mean anything. When I think about the left in Ireland, I worry that to be in opposition, it's kind of an easier position to be in than to be in, in the seat of power in that you can say anything. Really, Like you, you can put together a manifesto or um, policies to go against the policies that are in power at the minute, but you haven't got the responsibility to actually put them into practice and i think i worry that in ireland if the mainstream say left were to get into power that they would just be it's taken part it's all taken part in the same system which is they go in there and say try and put into practice uh, more socialist based policies and then they won't be able to because the system is so rigged against them that they'll just become another constitutional sort of center party and then they will have run their course (coughs) and then it's going to have to start again where another left-wing party is going to have to come up and try and do something different but then they will get into power and they won't be able to affect the change either. Like, where where does that cycle end? It's (laughs) not
1: impossible and if you look at the budgets that People Before Profit and Solidarity and Sinn Féin presented, their budgets were within the framework of the Department of Finance. But, like, who runs the Department of Finance? Senior civil servants appointed by Fine Gael and Fine Fall? And both of these political parties were kind of—I uh, suppose—they were happy about the fact that they were able to present budgets that were good for the workers. But like, that's not—you know—that's that—that's not what we're talking about when when I speak about the overthrow of capitalism. I'm not talking about a writing a budget that the Department of Finance officials will go, "Oh, that's grand, yeah, more social housing, great." Uh, that's that that works you know everybody's happy that's that's fundamentally kinda exactly not what we should be talking about and to me it feels like all the all 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 the trappings of social democracy they haven't gotten into government yet, but they're already trapped by all the terminology all the rules all the kind of guidelines you know write a budget we're so happy that Every year Sinn Féin release an alternative budget and they say, oh, it's fully costed, whatever. But it's like, that's the extent of what they seem to be pushing for. So they're already entrapped within the idea that promoting an alternative budget that's a bit more equitable and that adds 2% tax on pharmaceuticals is progressive, whereas we're talking about fundamentally kind of changing society. So how they understand socialism is, I think, very different to how we understand socialism. And that's where the Connolly Youth Movement comes in, I guess, from your part then? I, I like to think so, um, I like to think so, but it's been a curious experience um, because when I joined, I joined and there was about 10 of us nationally sitting around the table in Dublin and going, well, kind of, what are we going to do? And now we're kind of hitting just under 100 members four years later. So there's obviously an appetite for a certain style of politics in Ireland and a certain approach to things, one of which is we're not going to get too fobbed up on getting young people to knock on people's doors and become kind of canvas agents for other people looking to get elected. That's the one thing we've kind of taken a very hands-off approach on and we've decided that we'll do, we'll do it differently. We'll give agency to the young people that are angry about things and we'll give them the authority and the power to actually enact change in society as they see fit. And that's kind of where things like Connolly Barracks comes in. Um, that's where things like Connolly Barracks comes in, where we didn't need to vote for anybody. We didn't need to lobby anybody. We didn't need to come with the begging bowl to elected officials or civil servants. We said, there's people in this house who live here who have nowhere else to go. Uh, there's empty buildings in Cork. Two plus two equals Connolly barracks. Very simple. It's the same with trade unions. You know, you're not going to your manager alone saying, oh, I'm a really good worker, whatever. You're saying, Everybody in this fucking place has the same issues, and we're going to go together. And that's the sense of empowerment that you get from actions like that. And that's, that's the task, as I see it, of the Connolly Hood movement to help people understand that that's where fundamental change lies. Like I was mentioning um, how the share of wealth goes to one part of one class less. So 52% of the population gets 25% of the share of the wealth, and like 10% of the population gets basically the rest. But how do you change that? And the, how you change that is by doing these things. You, you do that by increasing or helping people fight for better paying conditions in their workplace. That's, they're literally getting a better, bigger share of their wealth. Or you do it by occupying empty buildings, as far as I'm concerned, because what I have and any of the money that pe- the people have here isn't ever going to go into the pro- pocket of a private landlord. Um, and there's a, we were actually discussing this there a couple of days ago, because we had a small event in UCC about Conley Barracks, and we were talking about it and we were kind of saying to ourselves, it's very ironic is that despite kind of living in a squat, which is quite precarious, you know, the owner can come someday with a court order and say, look, that's, that's it. Um, but all of us have a bigger feeling of possession over this place than we do over our family homes or, you know, we were kind of asking ourselves, when you say the word home and you close your eyes, what do you see? And all of us were kind of saying, well, Connolly Barracks. We have a bigger emotional investment in this place than we do in the p- places we grew up in, or our family homes, or whatever else. And that seems to suggest to me is that there's something there that because we have no overbit, there's no landlord, nobody owns this place but us, despite it being kind of precariously owned. But because of that precarious ownership, we have a bigger bond to it than people do with their short-term kind of accommodation. And I think that's 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 a whole that's a very like um, unique. I think, thing to promote politically because it doesn't exist. Like other political organizations seem to me to be happy to uh, uh, oblige by the rules. So for example, like I know a lot of people who work for different political parties and they're kind of renting or they're buying homes. And I'm not trying to take away, I'm actually happy that they're going to get security over their roof. But my point, I kind of guess, is that the party is narrowing down its political objectives to winning more seats rather than broadening their political objectives so that their entire member base is involved with fundamentally changing society like our the way we see it is in every city that we have a presence we want there to be occupations and the bigger our membership grows the more occupations we want so it's like it's a politically broadening process where our strength isn't just measured on how many kind of people can we bring to a protest it's measured on how much of capital have how much of capital have we literally taken away from the capitalist class and made it
0: socially owned you said something earlier I think across the political spectrum i don't think anybody would be able to argue with about that the importance of having a sense of home mm-hmm. and a, a sense of ownership on where you're living and I don 't think the value of that can be understated really when it comes to physical mental health yeah. and yeah, yeah the, how i guess how happy you are in your life that has yeah. a, a big part to play in it. Uh, Kind of a crystal ball question, but do you think that it's possible that we would see the overthrow of capitalism in Ireland in, say, the next 50 years? I think,
1: first and foremost, the next financial crisis will be a turning point in whatever people decide to do. I think the turning point has already happened. So if we look back to January and December, when the events in Roscommon took place, for example... Now, I find I find measuring, like, how do you measure where the population is at in terms of how angry it is or how politically developed it is? It's probably by kind of these sporadic events that take place. So in Roscommon, we had an eviction. Then we had a physical repossession. And then we had people in Dublin. We don't even know if they're connected, going out targeting KBC banks. And this hasn't really happened in quite some time as a social phenomenon, so what is happening is that there's an escalation as to what people feel is the correct response to the people who they perceive as oppressing them which is in this case was kbc bank which carried out the eviction so the question of a revolution is really gauged on how that consciousness continues to develop and in what direction it continues to develop i think the next financial crisis by the way which will be worse than this one will probably polarize society another step further and uh The real question that's worth kind of, I guess, asking is where will the left and right be at those moments in time and how will they deal with falling standards in living and a society that's kind of crying out for change? So I I think it's possible, depending on how the left acts and how it kind of behaves and how it interacts with the working class. From the perspective of the Connolly youth, the one commitment we made to ourselves was and this this stems from another talk that I attended as um, Dr. Conor McCabe. And he was talking at the Trade Union Left Forum and he was talking about... Um, <coughs> well, the, he was talking about uh, the recession in general and how it impacted the trade union movement. One of the questions he asked was, 2008 was the worst recession ever. And he goes, where was the revolution? And it's a question I always ask myself because I'm sitting here thinking... Well, when the next financial crisis hits, are we going to simply go out and say, with our placards and peacefully say, no, no more bank bailouts? Or are we gonna do something else? Are we going to resist a bit more forcefully maybe? Because the bank bank bailout, despite kinda being probably the worst thing to have happened to the entire population, has had virtually no resistance to it. So I think it really depends on what the left does. And if it's gonna do more of the same, vote for us
0: for socialism, it's not going to get anywhere. Do you think the Connolly, the Connolly movement in general will, will eventually move into electoral politics? No,
1: and I think that's why young people are going to continue to opt for us over other political organisations in the long term. Um, it's not to dismiss electoral politics as a means of broadcasting your views or your political positions, but it is to dismiss electoral politics as a viable strategy for socialism in Ireland. Nobody's going to allow a dull majority to suddenly overnight change who owns Ireland. And who owns Ireland are US multinationals, EU banks, and people like Dennis O'Brien, as well as six counties of the fucking country are partitioned and occupied by the British Army. And a dull majority isn't actually going to fix any of those things. So, crucially... For young people to feel empowered, we need to be promoting alternative political work, which comes in the form of, in my opinion, occupations, trade union work, and eventually cooperatives, because uh, seeing as you've been to the Basque country, and this just kind of went back to me, they have a culture of cooperatives in the Basque country, not just as a means of political opposition, but also simply it's become a cultural thing. And it strikes me as that this is the logical next step, that you not only occupy your own living spaces but then you move on to owning your own working spaces you know and you detract from the power of capital and you empower the working class through these small steps Um, i look with a lot of inspiration to the black panther party i don't know how familiar you are with them but i think the things they did in terms of rallying their community and organizing their community are exactly the models of organization we should be looking at and the places where we should be putting our resources, rather, again, than constant cycles of electoral politics. They built an organisation of members that came from backgrounds that were arguably worser than any of the backgrounds of members in the Connolly movement, and probably suffered things that we'll never have to suffer. And they still built a disciplined, militant, nationwide organisation that was able to not only politicise their membership and how capitalism worked, but also make meaningful change for their communities.
0: Some of my friends in Belfast actually <clears throat> started uh, a smaller version of the the kind of breakfast programs that the, the Panthers had in um, on up in the White Rock Road, and it's interesting to hear them talking about it because when they started it, first of all, they had brought some a few tables and food and put it out uh, before school and then it eventually kind of merged, evolved into a lunch a lunch based program as well but whenever I'm talking to the lads about it they're saying like that uh, people at the start just kind of thought they were a religious group or something like that or that were selling the food and then after the first few days that then people really started buying into it and coming over and, and taking their bit of fruit or um, on their way into school and stuff like that but I think that those programs look like, when you look back at at mass left wing movements, the Black Panthers definitely were one of the most successful in terms of the benefit that they brought to their communities. They were kind of destroyed from within whenever the American government brought brought um, crack cocaine and things like that into the into the black areas. Yeah, um, there's a really good book actually I read called Black Against Empire. Mm. Very interesting history of of the Black Panthers. So, did you join the Conley Youth Movement because of your interest in, in James Conley initially, or heard of Connolly?
1: no? Actually, no. Um, so it's related to a bit of background history about myself. Um, <coughs> so I was born in the former Soviet Republic of Estonia, and we moved when I was about five. 1998, give or take, ninety-nine, we settled in Bandon here. And a lot of that, a lot of my politics have been framed by the fact that, well, why were we migrants in the first place? Obviously, as a migrant, I think every migrant asks themselves, why did I have to move? And you might draw different conclusions, but the conclusion that was obvious to me was that because we were poor. Well, then the question is, well, why were we poor? And the logical conclusion is because it was because of the collapse of socialism. So then the next question is, well, what's socialism? You know, you have to read about it to understand it. And it kind of came as a natural lived experience or at least the consequences of a lived experience. So I might not have lived through socialism, but I've certainly lived its consequences. And one of those consequences was absolute dire poverty and then the necessity of having to migrate. Um, Politicization actually came about, like more acute politicization came about through Operation Protective Edge when Israel killed 2,400 people and 800 children. And I kind of started going to protest straight away and just the injustice of it just made me angry. So I protested. And I saw that the Communist Party was running a candidate for the local area elections. And I reached out and I said, well, what's the story with the Communist Party? Tell me about it. Um, and it kind of immediately clicked that this was my political home, even though I had not been well read. And in fact, all my reading about Irish history came as a result of having spoken to the Communist Party member because he had said, well, it actually it was like this. In fact, I had a very condescending view of Ireland and Irish people up until that point. Um, and I think ironically enough I was reflecting on it not too long ago it comes from that institutionalized kind of semi-colonial mentality is that I think a lot of Irish people actually see themselves that way as well that there's a self-hating kind of perpetuating view Um, and you see it best when you talk about the European Union and Ireland's membership in the European Union I'll I'll come back as to why that's relevant to the Conley youth but You sit down and talk to somebody about the EU and they're like oh yeah well it's good that we're in the EU they've given us this and that but if you tease that logic out the reason people think the EU is positive is because they have had a civilizing effect on the Irish so there's like an internalized like we're too stupid to be progressive kind of view and I always really found that um on a I'd say almost subconscious level I found it off-putting engage with and I always thought I had a condescending view of Ireland essentially because people seem to have like a self-hating kind of uh self-deprecating kind of view of themselves but after being exposed to Irish history by speaking to the Communist Party of Ireland member my view totally flipped on its side He was like James Connolly uh Mellows James Costello I was kind of taken aback really how did this all happen and I didn't hear of it in the education curriculum why wasn't any of this in my history books how did I miss it you know and I ploughed into essentially the collected works of Connolly and it just kind of went very quickly from there is that my view of Ireland changed and my own feeling in Ireland changed. It stopped being a place that I wanted to leave, I'm sure like many other young people. And it started to being a place that's A, home and B, that I I really want to change and in the tradition and spirit of people like James Connolly. That thing that
0: you mentioned about the... um that self-hating thing as you said it yeah. there look that's a typical post-colonial symptom of yeah. post-colonialism yeah. in a way I would say that one of the functions of people who are more um, socialistly minded is to help shine light on that fact as opposed to being like oh you can tell fucking hate each other yeah fuck yeah. this and yeah. it, it because it is a symptom that you can be seen in, in any post-colonial society yeah. in the world yeah. That 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 becomes a thing. What about James Connolly then? What's the what were the main things that, about him that that, that kind of that got you into this area?
1: I'd say what what I mean. What gets a young fella? It's been four years, so I'm still young. But what gets a young fella fired up about any revolutionary? Um, it's probably sacrifice at 1916 that kind of gets you thinking. Is that if somebody goes out and commits an act of rebellion and is then shot for it well then there's probably quite a lot of um meaning behind why they committed that act of rebellion what led them to the act of rebellion and ultimately why they were willing to essentially lay down their life for the for their political beliefs so put all that together and what you have is a sort of first of all a deep found respect for the fact that a man with, say, five young children was able to go out, formulate a rebellion, a very well-organised rebellion as well, and um, kind of have very deeply impacting events on the course of Irish history. Um, another thing that I really felt resonated with me personally was the fact that Connolly had never went to any secondary or third-level education, that his political education first of all, came from comrades around him, but it was also very self-educated that he had a passion to consume volumes and volumes of books. And Desmond Greaves' book on him, for example, documents how when he did his first tour of America, he was going train by train and he was consistently reading Marx and Engels and kind of building his arguments when he'd go from town to town. And I just found that uh, beyond kind of gripping is that he gave up effectively everything including the kind of normal eat humble pie and have a family life in order to champion the cause of the working class and when you have somebody like that I think it's some people say it's hero worship but I find that um, I think we all need somebody to look up to
0: and if Connolly is going to be the person we look up to then I think that's perfectly fine I think that we would probably agree politically on a lot of things and probably differ politically in some things as well But one of the things that is going through my mind at the minute is people would possibly listen to this and say you guys are just some small group of communists are kicking up a fuss and could easily write it off. But I think it's important to maybe put it out there now that at the time of the 1916 raisin, the raisin itself wasn't a popular raisin. That was in itself a relatively small group of people. And when you look at how that's, that has developed on in the last 103 years, I think it highlights the importance of not dismissing groups that aren't large in number, but have a coherent argument to make and a contribution to make to the, the political debate of the time. Have you seen that documentary, The Zeitgeist Movement?
1: I haven't. No,
0: no. Interesting concept in there about how society is uh, could be potentially set up, and one of the main things that, one of the main arguments of that series of documentaries and that whole movement, is that any system, any political system that's based on the exchange of money as the as the main currency of society is eventually going to end up being not to the benefit of the vast majority of the people what do you think about that Do you ever think about about the the role that money has because even if you look at socialism it still involves money and somebody's going to have to be in control of it yeah and eventually the possibility is that the person or the group who's in in control of it are going to have more of it than the rest of the people which is basically what we have now yeah um
1: one of the interesting kind of discussions that was happening in the Soviet Union post-World War II was on the abolition of currency and transitioning to a higher stage of society and essentially this was the question they were dealing with well how do we go beyond kind of what we have already and have a society where say is it going to be barter based are we going to exchange goods on a different sort of basis and It's a curious question to consider, especially because communism, at least the way it's portrayed by Marx and Engels, ultimately argues for a classless and moneyless society. That's the objective, and that's the objective. Um, And the question, I suppose, is, well, how do you build towards that objective? It strikes me that for that to function, it can never function as a standalone kind of project in one country. So... Cuba can never transition to that because they're an island that's not connected to other. They don't have the means of survival and ultimately they live in a capitalist world. Like They have to buy the stuff to survive. With the currency that somebody's trading with, yeah. And I think the same will happen to Ireland and I think the Soviet Union was essentially in the same position. Even though it was quite a large country that had a lot of natural resources, it still ultimately had to trade with other countries on some sort of currency. Um, So to abolish money... It would seem to me is that that would require every country in the world or at least 80 percent of them to have the capacity to trade amongst each other or exchange goods without using money which means that most of the countries in the world would have to be socialists so it's a kind of a problem for the far future but it's always nibbling away at the back of your head and it's also a question about like what about corruption and what about greed and then there's also the, the my favorite bingo question well what about human nature um And these are the kind of questions we're always dealing with as well. And some of them are easier to put aside like others. Like, for example, for human nature, I find that I don't think people take into consideration how much of our being is nurture versus nature. If we were raised with no influence from birth, we would run around with clubs in our underpants hitting each other over the head that's that's kind of the basic Neanderthal being, whereas everything else we 're taught um and the example I always give is our children born racist, and everybody knows they aren't they don 't care what color another person is, and I think it 's the same for a lot of other values, the value you place on commodities or or whatever or on yourself as an individual or on and a number of other aspirations, it's all nurture. It's all given to you by society. And I think in order to change our view, even of money, you have to change how people interact and understand society, which means the collective kind of upbringing of people has to change as well. Um, Which kind of leads me to answer, I guess, the question partially with regards to human nature is that in order to change how people interact with money, you first have to change how people interact in general, uh, there's a good Lenin quote, it's something along the lines of, give me a generation of young people and I'll change the world. And that that's literally what he meant is because they weren't going to raise them according to the way Tsarist Russian schools were going to raise them. They were going to raise them in a new kind of, there was going to be a new Soviet citizen who didn't, who had different priorities. And uh, a, a more anecdotal example is my dad was always telling me um, about when he was in school and he was a pioneer one of the tasks school students were given and they were paired off, this was their social duty to society, that they would be given a pensioner to look after for the duration of their time in school. Now, this doesn't sound like, it doesn't sound like anything. It doesn't sound like anything special. But even the minuscule of those type of things aren't done here. And you have to wonder, how did that impact his understanding of his social responsibility to society? How does he see elderly people as a result of being tasked in school this was your social duty, you go and look after this old person, you help them with their cleaning or their shopping or whatever else, because that's the right thing to do. So if we're building a society and a new set of moral principles, then I think even things like money and how we understand money will change. Um, they say that in the post-war period, for example, in socialist countries, it was one of the most honest periods because all the people came back from a war essentially, that was threatening to exterminate their very existence. And their bristle kind of with war had changed their understanding,
0: I would say even advanced their understanding of socialism and its importance. To add a little bit to that quote that you said there by Lenin and the example that you gave of your dad in school, like Podrick Pierce, before he became sort of involved in the lead-up to the 1916 rising, he... Was the principle of um, St. Edna's, yeah. ...Scolena and Scollia, and the the philosophy behind that was to not just have another version of the English education system within Ireland, but to create an Irish education system that would change the generation that that was coming through the school.
1: That, that's exactly it. Yeah. So uh, yeah, um, I, I've only read very briefly on Padraig Pearse, but I've been very fixated with the idea of a school. Um, it's something I'd like to see the Connelly youth movement do again. So, and again, it boils down to like ha- how we're directing the development of our movement. Whereas any other youth movement might say we should kind of, I don't know, take a two-week trip abroad or something. Like I'd like to see it broaden and deepen into the consciousness of young people in Ireland. And I, I will say you were mentioning that we were kind of a small movement, and that's something that's brought to our attention. But the counter argument is often, uh, well, you've heard of us, so. We'll, we must not be that small, um, and I think, despite being the size we are, we've captured the imagination of a lot of the left in Ireland. Um, a lot of the left know who we are. The trade unions know who we are. Um, a lot of their members know who we who we are, and we're only
0: kind of getting started, really. Class that example you gave of the school as well. I'll actually, just add one more uh, kind of personal story because I think anyone who gets involved in this kind of thing. Or I guess your personal your personal experiences always impact what you end up doing later in life, I yep. guess. And I think a big impact on me was the education system that I came through, which is, for me, is like, I can't think of a better example of how um, local people came together to provide an education, system of education for, for the kids who were coming through that would then have a further knock-on, positive impact on society down the line in the late... In the late 60s, the group of Irish speakers set up the Gail Talk area in Belfast, formed a school, which was the school that I went to for primary school. And then in the early 90s, the secondary school that I went to was formed on the Falls Road. And if you look at the community and especially the wider community in West Belfast now is massively impacted in a positive way by the Irish-speaking community there. And all of the people who came through the education system there are now adults working in the community. And it has had a net positive effect on, on the community there. So um, that ties in nicely with a couple of examples that you just gave there.
1: Yeah. It, it, well, it challenges the idea that the ca- and the very capitalist idea because the people who are telling the rest of society that we're all greedy and individuals are the ruling class. And we're kind of, a lot of the people are just regurgitating that. They said, well, we're greedy. And it's like, well, first of all, speak for yourself. But um, and there's no kind of
0: intention to challenge it. If somebody wanted to read up more in terms of the political theory and practice of socialism, what books would you recommend?
1: Well, I think seeing as we live in Ireland, the first book you read is Labour and Irish History. It's pointless to read dry theoretical volumes without any context. And uh, that's what a lot of leftists do. They read Lenin and they say, well, I've read Lenin and I know this, but to me it's not worth anything if it doesn't connect to your reality so i always say start with labor and irish history or even better yet start with something like socialism made easy which is again another connolly pamphlet and as the title is quite self-explanatory it, it really breaks down in a simplistic way what socialism is and it, i think if you're an inquisitive person by nature you probably want to follow up on more of the terminology that connolly uses or how he understands society should be organized um I think pamphlets like Wage, Labour and Capital by Marx need to make a comeback because we're not having discussions about, like we were talking about, who actually, who first of all creates the wealth and who's the benefactor of the wealth. We seem to be having discussions that are very superficial. We need free education, we need free healthcare and we need loads of public Well, Hey, that's socialism. But that's not what we're talking about. Um, And we need to be going back to the economics of how socialist society could hypothetically be organized and how it has been organized in other socialist countries.
0: How can people keep up to date with what's happening with the barracks, the Conley Youth Movement, and any events that you just have coming up?
1: I think you can just find us on Facebook, uh, like any other organization, or our website, cym.ie. Um, there's updates on both of those organs. Yeah, thanks a so million for doing the podcast. Thanks for coming, yeah. Nice. yeah.
0: What did you think about that episode lads? It would be really interested to hear your feedback. There is probably some stuff in there that a lot of people will agree with. Maybe some stuff that people wouldn't agree with. But I think that one of the most important things that we can do at this point in time is to start a political discussion where we can hear both sides of the story in a well presented and sensible sort of a way or sensible presentation and I think that that's exactly what Alex just did with some of his political opinions and views and those of the Connolly youth movement. So let's use this episode to start that conversation. You can start it or join in on it through any of the social media platforms that The Rebel Matters is on, Instagram and Facebook namely. You can also do it through the Patreon where you can also support The Rebel Matters podcast And as usual, thanks a million for listening and for getting in touch with me and for sharing the Rebel Matters podcast around. It's class so far and we're on a bit of a buzz at the minute, so we're gonna keep it going. So I'll speak to you next Friday. Goramilem Wyagov, Asiveg Eschat, August Gujin Katerala. Can you fear?